to the theology pit. Theology pit. You're falling in the theology pit. Hey everyone, and welcome back to The Theology Pit. This is Theology Out of Pittsburgh, and not to be confused with The Bottomless Pit. My name is Samson Kovach. I'm your host. Um, hey, you can always visit me at samsonsick.com. That's S-A-M-S-O-N-S-T-I-C-K.com. Um, it's named actually for the Chapman stick that I play, uh, the, the instrument. This music that you're hearing right now. Uh, yeah, this is me, you know, doing all that. Um, another thing is that if you want to get a hold of me, email's probably the best way, samson at samsonstick.com. Remember, that's S-A-M-S-O-N. There's no P in my name. You don't like it in your pool, I don't like it in my name. Uh, so, we are discussing right now the Bible. This is, you know, part three. I have no idea, just like with, with the salvation aspect, we talked about justification. I have no idea how long these are going to go because of all the information that I want to cover and all the stuff that's out there. But... This is a topic where I don't know if a lot of Christians have really thought about it. Maybe some have. Um, but whenever you are explaining that you're a Christian to somebody and they ask you questions about the Bible, an answer of I don't know. A lot of people say, hey, it's okay to say I don't know. And I would say, you know what, if, if, if you're a new Christian or you're new to apologetics, maybe, you know, maybe it's okay to say that. But to be honest... We should be teaching this stuff in churches. We should have courses about the Bible. I mean, we say in, in Protestant churches, especially, that the Bible is the Word of God and that it is the only infallible authority that we have for faith and practice. Well, we should know about that. What makes it an infallible authority? What what gives it that stature? How does how is it different from other books? Uh, how, where did it come from? How was it put together? Like, what's going on with it? And the fact that we don't teach that, that that's not a priority in our churches, that's always concerning to me. I mean, I understand that the, the people say, well, the message is more important, and we'll just go with that. Well, you know what? Knowing where it comes from is, is just as important. I mean, the reason that we have the books that we have in the New Testament is because... Christians evaluated them and said, yay or nay, um, where they came from, where, who they were written by. These are all important things. And can they be trusted? Are they authentic? And that's kind of what we're doing here in, uh, in this theology pit. So, you know, stick around and I hope this isn't too boring for you. I say I hope it's not too boring for you, but you know, I know, I know that it's not like I find this stuff exciting. Like I find textual criticism exciting. I really do. And textual criticism, if you, um, if this is your first podcast listening to, uh, textual criticism is the, the science of looking at ancient manuscripts when you have a lot of them that all are supposed to say the same thing and how they differ from one place to another the variance between them, how, how one manuscript might vary from another manuscript. Um, within the New Testament, there's between 300 and 400,000 of these variants or errors. Uh, some people call them errors, but it's more properly called variants. The, the fact that there are errors, I would say the intentional errors we could call errors, but the unintentional errors, I would just 
keep them as variants because that's basically what they are. And we talked about that on the last podcast with other ancient manuscripts, but also with the Bible. And I wanted to kind of go over some of that stuff a little bit more today. Um, You know, continuing on with, uh, you know, so I guess that this podcast and the last podcast is going to be kind of like a mini part one and mini part two, but I'm going to continue on with my notes here and just sit back and discuss like what some of the intentional errors are. And I want to focus more on those because I know that that grabs a lot of people's attention because they're like, okay, look, the unintentional errors, we don't, we don't really care about. If it doesn't make any difference, whether, you know, somebody wrote down, you know, if the original wording was written Jesus Christ and a copyist made an error and wrote it Christ Jesus, we don't care about that. That's not something that that bothers us, okay? What bothers us is all of the intentional errors. Like, I want to know the errors where, you know, the, the, the scribe changed the text, changed the meaning of the text, um, totally changed what the author was trying to say, whoever that author was. And that's all I care about. And if that's the case, then you only care about 1% of the, uh, the manuscripts, okay? Now, like we said before, we have, you know, um, 25,000 handwritten copies of the New Testament, probably 6,000 of them are in Greek. The rest of them are you know, six or 7,000 in Greek, somewhere around there. The rest of them are in other languages. Now, the bonus to them being in other languages is the fact that you can compare the the meanings. You can compare uh, the the voice that's coming out. What what is trying to be communicated? If you go from one language to another, you can get this understanding, especially early, especially early on, because you get an understanding of okay, if it's put in another language, it might be clearer to us in that other language what that meaning was, and it helps our interpretation. And it's not that the meaning was made up or devoid. If it's early enough on in in church history, what you're looking at is the teachings of the apostles, the teachings of the disciples on how you are to read the new Testament, what exactly it means, what the early church believed. It's going to help you in that understanding and in, in putting that forward. Um, for example, the word love, we, you know, don't have a lot of variation in that word. Hang on a second. Sorry. I need to snort there. Oh, no, I got, you know, um, well, some nasal problems here, but, uh, you know, we, we only have the one word love and we have to kind of interpret it whenever we're speaking. Um, you know, when I say I love pizza and I say, I love my wife and I say, I love my children. Those are three different, very, very different uses of the word love. But in Koine Greek, you know, there's four and I, and I've gone over those in other pits, like what the four, um, you know, words for love are, but if you take something um, like we have in the uh, like we have in the Greek, um, and you know it, it, the 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 sentence says or the the phrase says that you know, John loves Mary. Okay, that's it. Three three words in English. John loves Mary. Well, what does that mean? I mean, I, I, and I'm saying that rhetorically because, of course, everyone listening is is like, okay, moving on. Yeah, we get that. John loves Mary. 
um, we have an idea. Well, actually, depending on the word order and how that can be written in Greek, there's eight different ways of writing that phrase. Okay? To, to express that idea. There's eight different ways. So if somebody was copying it out, let's say that, you know, you, you had a copy of the gospel of John. Okay. And in the gospel of John, you know, written in there somewhere is, you know, John loves Mary and it's being read out loud to three or four scribes. Let's just say hypothetically, this, this may have happened. I'm not sure if, if it exactly happened like this, but somebody's reading it and four people are copying it down. You know, it's mass production at the time. And they say, John loves Mary. Which of those variations are they going to write? Because all eight of them, any of them are acceptable. Okay. Totally acceptable. And they all can sound alike. Um, but it can just be written down in that way. If, if, if the language, the subtleties of it is changing a little bit or somebody says, oh, you know what? If I wrote it this way, rather than the way that I heard it read, it would actually make more sense and be a little more clear. I mean, who, who knows what kind of thoughts, but there's eight different ways to write John Loves Mary. Now, there are other legitimate word orders that you could put it in besides these eight different ones, depending on the tenses that are used, but depending on, you know, um, uh, different endings or, um, you know, just different, uh, I guess, inflections. Um, Dan Wallace in his, uh, work on textual criticism that you can get from, uh, the credo house courses. Uh, he goes through all these and he wrote them all out and there's about 500 different legitimate word order ways to say. Now, that's just using one of the words love, okay? If you use a different verb for loves, like I said, there's four different ways, it swells to 12,000 or 1,200, excuse me. So there's 1,200 different ways, legitimate different ways to write John loves Mary, okay? Does that change the meaning of everything? Well, no, but it does swell that number up potentially to that 300, 400,000 errors or variants in the New Testament when they honestly, they don't make any difference at all. And, but this is something that, you know, non-theists, non-Christians, anti-theists, anti-Christians like to throw out there. They, they take this number from Bart Ehrman's work and it's not just from Bart Ehrman, like, yeah, Dan Wallace is actually on the higher end of the of the variant spectrum, and he is uh, he's most definitely a Christian, and it's it's not something to be afraid of. The reason why we have so many variants is because we have so many manuscripts. If we had one manuscript, we'd have zero variants, zero. We would be able to say God perfectly preserved His Word because we have the manuscript right here. Okay, um, how do you know that's the right one? Well, it's the only one we have. So therefore, God must have predestined it, preordained it to be the one, to be the word. I mean, there are some Christian groups that believe that. Uh, there's a 17th century uh, doctrine called the doctrine of preservation. 
She talks about that. We'll, we'll get to that when we talk about the Texas Receptus, which is the uh, the what's what's known as the received text is what it means, and that's the the text that the uh, King James version of the Bible is uh, is written from, and that's that's dealing with I think uh, it's a total of six manuscripts that were put together. The man, I mean, we have so many more today that we that we found, and that relies heavily on the Byzantine manuscripts and not. Uh, any Alexandrian ones or from anywhere else, but uh, but that's something that we'll get to down the line. Whenever we you know look at all of these uh, textual variants and those those sort of things and that number, just remember the number is so high because the types or the the, the sheer volume that we have of 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 texts of manuscripts is so high, and it's actually a good thing. If you look at any other ancient works, any other, um, let's say, religious writings, okay, and that are very old, and you ask them, well, how many, you know, variants do you have? I mean, and they say none. It was perfectly preserved. God perfectly preserved that. Well, that doesn't make a lot of sense with the way that things things happen. I'm not saying it's impossible for God to do that. I'm just saying that God doesn't seem to do things like that. Uh, for example, whenever a miracle takes place, okay, natural laws take over. Jesus turned water into wine. If it sat out, it would become sour and vinegar. Uh, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus still died. Okay. When things happen, when, when God performs a miracle, the miracle is done to show the authority of the words of the one who does the miracle. So if someone comes to you and says, I speak for God, according to Deuteronomy, they are supposed to give a sign, okay? And then they give a sign, they're supposed to say something afterwards. And whatever they say afterwards, if it's, you compare it to the word of God, if it's orthodox, if it, you know, holds up to the rest of scripture, as Deuteronomy tells us, then you're to listen to them. But if they do a sign or a wonder and says, and then say, hey, let's go to such and such a place and worship these other gods, you're not to listen to them. Deuteronomy spells that out. So whenever a, a, a miracle occurs, it's to validate, partially validate what the person is going to say okay it's to it's to give it that weight that says hey this is a word from god this is not just something that's coming out of this person's head so therefore it has to be tested now if somebody says hey i got a word from god you know it was it was written down okay well where is it at well it was written down two thousand years ago oh well how did we get it well people copied it and went and went along um Okay, well, did people make mistakes? Well, yeah, people make mistakes. Not everybody's perfect. Okay, well, people made mistakes. Here you have it. You're going to have mistakes in it. Um, You know, if you want to say that we actually do have the word of God, like we said before, if if people genuinely want to help other people and they are making mistakes in their translation then their translation, because they're going to add to it to help smooth things out, to make things a little more clear, then it's going to be a lot bigger. So the smaller reading and the smaller text is what we are going for. We're not going for the bigger bigger reading because that shows that things were added in. Now, if you had things that were accidentally omitted 
and you can see, you know, where that happens. And thank goodness we have, um, uh, you know, different manuscripts, um, so that we could see if something like that occurred. But another thing that we have to consider here is that these scribes who are, you know, writing all this stuff down, who are making all these, uh, all these copies and everything, um, we talk about what we're doing with textual criticism by taking all these manuscripts and, you know, working out. They were doing the same thing. Okay. Let's say that you are a scribe from, I'll say the, the ninth century. Okay. Throw that out there. And you are copying a book of the new Testament or you're copying out the whole new Testament. Okay. Well, let's just stick with one book. What, what copy do you have? Okay. I mean, where, where is it from? You know, is it from the fourth century? Is it from the sixth century? Is it from the eighth century? Is it from the guy next to you? <laughs> you know, that, that just copied one out from the ninth century. Uh, what, where did it come from? And what's your point in, in writing it? I mean, the reason why we have so many different kinds of translations in English is because they were all translated for different kinds of people. The NIV was written at a sixth grade level. So it's so the words that they're going to choose are going to be different than something that's written at like a dynamic equivalency. Um, and the dynamic equivalency would be, you know, something like the revised standard version. Okay. Something that's a little more, you know, word for word. And then you have paraphrased Bibles. Bibles that, you know, they're more or less commentary. You look at them like the message Bible. Um, and it's, it's just trying to get the, the ideas out, not necessarily staying, you know, with the wording itself. So if a scribe is copying out the New Testament and they're trying to get it into the vernacular of their people and he's writing and, you know, he's, he's saying, okay, I'm going to try and smooth this language out to make it easier for them to understand. I mean, I'm going to put this, you know, idiom in there to help them understand. And then you might get some scribes that say, look, I don't, I don't care. I'm here to preserve the text as best as possible. Okay. And the second scribe is just writing word for word, literally letter for letter. They don't care if there are mistakes in it. They are not doing textual criticism, maybe a little bit, but not a lot. And they are just writing just mechanically. If that looks like a theta, I'm writing down a theta. You know, if that looks like an Omicron, writing down an Omicron. If I can't tell the difference, I'm going to make it look the same way that I'm looking at it. So I want to do this type of person that organizes their sock drawer. I mean, they just want things perfect just like this. Okay. And then you have some people, they just love the text. I mean, they all love the text, but these guys, I mean, they really love it and they get excited, you know, and you know, they're writing and they're throwing in an amen here and there. They're throwing into God be the glory there. You know, I mean, you're getting all these little, you know, things that they're kind of just putting in there because they're getting excited. And you can tell when you're looking at these manuscripts, like the different personalities of the people that are writing them, um, you know, Peter's going to walk on the water. Like they know the story's coming up. You know, they're writing, their letters start getting bigger. They're getting excited. You know, you get to where Peter denies Christ. Their letters get smaller. Okay. They, they know that it's coming. They have to, you know, write this out. Um, so you have all these people that are doing this and then some scribes, maybe they're making little notes in the column, you know, and they are just, you know, kind of copying things here and there and writing a little note here and said, Oh, you know what? Um, 
sometimes they would say, hey, I'm using these manuscripts, not all the time. Uh, but sometimes they're, you know, just writing out, putting little notes in here, you know, here and there, you know, the, to God be the glory or for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. You have those liturgical additions too, like with the ending of the Lord's prayer and those sort of things, which is a, an intentional error that we will, that we'll get to the end, the long ending of the Lord's prayer. Um, but you have these four different kinds of scribes, okay, that are making copies. You're in the ninth century. You have, let's say, six manuscripts in front of you. Not only where, what era are they from, but what type of scribe are you getting them from? And what type of scribe did they copy them from? Okay, you see how this can start to get a little bit jumbled? So you have to kind of do a little bit of investigation while you're writing this. You know, if you have six copies in front of you, four of them can contain the Gospel of Matthew, or let's just say they're all the Gospel of Matthew, and you're looking at them, and you have them all out in front of you, and each section that you go to, are you going word by word? Are you going, you know, line by line, which would be, you know, easier than sentence by sentence, you know, because of the way that there were no punctuations, there were no breaks, probably go easier line by line. Do you look at line by line? And how do you do that if each line of all the different manuscripts are not the same because like I said before, nothing was standard. If someone's letters were a little bit bigger than somebody else's letters, then you don't have that. You can't even go page by page because each page would have, you know, a different number of words on it, a different section. You almost have to go, you know, thought by thought, story by story, you know, and you, and you have to like piece this together. So it's almost like you'd have to like sit down and you'd have to read, you know, each one. And then kind of start making notes on, okay, this one is a little bit different than, than, than these over here. Where did this one come from? Is it an earlier manuscript? I mean, does it carry more weight? You know, if it's, if it's from the Alexandrian group, which were, um, you know, fewer in number, but, you know, better in quality, better in, in, in discipline in the way that um, the, the scribes in Alexandria copied. Uh, are they better than the Byzantine manuscripts, which we have a lot more of because it seems that somebody had a lot of money and just paid for a lot of these to to be written. Now, when you have the Great Diaspora of 70 AD with the temple being destroyed and everybody being you know thrown out and stuff, and these manuscripts, you know, I mean, the letters were already written to people around the Roman Empire, but these manuscripts are kind of, you know, flowering out. Think about like a like a tree, like a family tree. Okay, so you have this family tree. The trunk is the original. The roots are the original. And as it grows up, you have these branches that come out. Okay, the branches are all similar, but they're not the same. All right, think about those as like the manuscripts. Okay, the different variants that go out. So you may have a variant where you have one branch that goes out. Okay, and this branch has other little branches that come off of it. Okay, so you can actually use that. And you can, you know, pull that in and say, okay, all of this, the, this group right here, they have all these different variants, but they have this, this, this central point that's all in common. And we can see that all of these variants here actually came off of this tree, or this branch rather, right here, that then goes into maybe the, the, the original branch that, that it's coming off of, which then goes into the tree itself down towards the split into the trunk. Um. So you're looking at that and you're saying, okay, you know what? Geographically, all of these variants here were, you know, in this one place. The tricky thing comes is that when you get some variants that were only 
known to be in this one area and then, you know, to them halfway around the world, you know, hundreds of miles away, if not thousands of miles away, you have that same variant, but it's only in this one spot. That makes you think, well, how did that variant get over here? You know, did somebody travel with it? Like where is that? So people through history are trying to say, okay, well, what was the original wording, but not the original wording, like I said, as the original wording of intentional errors, but the original wording of unintentional errors. You know, sometimes people would try to smooth stuff out to make it say, you know, what they what they felt that needed to be brought out, what you needed to be told, what needed to be understood. And this is where we get into, you know, the, the concept of the in, intentional errors. Okay. And yeah, I think, I'm, I think we should start moving more into the, uh, the intentional errors and stuff. But uh, just so you know uh, that there was the Alexandrian group of manuscripts there were the Western group of manuscripts, the Byzantine group of manuscripts, and the Caesarian, I hope I pronounced that right, uh, group of manuscripts, okay? Um, who wrote these books, these gospels and all these stuff? Um, that's disputed by some textual critics today, but it wasn't back then. And I went over a little bit why with like the book of Hebrews. And those sort of things. Um, the uh, the manuscripts that we have are, like I said before, you know, uh, there we have we have a bunch of them. I'm just kind of looking through my notes. That's why I'm like um, studying it up. But um, the Alexandrian. Let me just let me just talk through this a little bit here for you okay other things being equal the alexandrian by itself would equal the autographer because of the way that they copied they weren't throwing in any extra stuff usually alexandrian manuscripts are smaller okay the western it is it can be considered earlier but it's erratic and um, there's strong internal evidence needed to make a claim of authenticity. The Byzantine was a little bit later. It's a secondary text, but with some authentic readings slipping through the net. Okay. Um, and then the Caesarian, it's, it's late. It's even later, but it's a secondary text. that's a precursor to the Byzantine, but with very few authentic read, readings slipping through the net. Right. Now you might be saying, all right, I don't, I don't know if I caught all of that. What it's saying is that you have these, this, this tree and you're looking at the top of the tree and you're looking at the, the leaves on the top of the tree. And let's say that you have a tree that maybe it's made up of two or three trees. Okay. That were grafted together. All right. Oranges, apples, pears. I don't even know if that's possible. We get the pears in there, but I think oranges and apples it is. Uh, but anyways, let's say you have those three different fruit. Okay, now in the apple section, there's an orange. Like, wait a minute, how did that get there? All right, and then in in a section all by itself, it looks like a fourth section because all three fruit are there. 
It's not like you just have a, a, a pear and apple and an orange section. It's like you have a pear section, an apple section, an orange section, and then a section that has all three of them. And it's kind of making you scratch your head. And you, you have to trace down the tree branches to find out exactly where they came from and, and how that all happened. Well, that's what we're talking about with these, these different um, manuscripts from these different areas. You know, and, and the fact that there were this, you know, I don't want to say cross pollution, but let's say cross pollination of, you know, these different manuscripts, depending on, you know, uh, how a lot of this stuff happened. Now, the Byzantine is the largest one. Okay. And the reason why is because Byzantium was, uh, north of, um, well, northwest, I guess you could say, think of, um, Istanbul, where that is today, modern-day Turkey. Uh, that was Constantinople. Um, that was Byzantium before that. So the Byzantine uh, text was, was there. Um, in the last series, we talked about the Diocletian persecution from 303 to 311. And we talked about the traitores, the, the ones who would turn over their papers. And these were ones who would turn over the New Testament to, you know, the religious writings to, and they would be burnt. They were trying to be destroyed because, you know, when in Rome, do the Romans do, you want them to be more Roman, you know, that, that, that whole thing that was happening. And he, you know, he, he was Diocletian was like, Hey, let's get everybody under, you know, one, uh, religion. And once we get under one religion and we start acting more Roman, things will be better. I'm like, let's get rid of this Christianity thing. And the persecution was just horrendous. And, um, so, you know, that was done in the, you know, the Southern areas a lot more than, you know, in the Northern areas. And that's why you have, um, a lot more manuscripts up there, um, uh, Constantine and Constantinople, of course, had these manuscripts uh, made, um, you know, copied and copied and copied. We have a lot more of that. Um, early on, it was translated into the Latin, into the into the Vulgate. Um, that this was done, I want to say, early sixth century, early fifth century. Uh, St. Jerome was commissioned by um, Pope Gregory the Great to translate it into Latin. And that became the standard um, Bible. If you, if you think about people who are King James only type people, uh, this is the same thing. Uh, th this would be the, um, uh, like the, like the, yeah, I guess that's a good illustration. Um, they'd be the Vulgate only people, but that, that's all that, that, that would be the biggest thing that was, that was used in all the churches and everything. And, and all that was around. And it was, you know, it was setting the language for people, um, to be used that way. And, and it was used that way for a thousand years. Um, you know, I mean, that was the Bible for a thousand years. It was in that translation. Um, the popularization of the Byzantine text was, uh, a, a big, reason for that was, uh, from John Christensen and John Christensen. Um, he, his, he's, he's an early church father. Um, not, not, I mean, I, I should say he's like a later early church father, like fifth century, fourth century. Um, his writings would, um, I have read them and he wrote like a lot of like commentaries. Like think about if you're reading like a study Bible or a study guide through a, a book, 
of the New Testament or something. Um, that's the type of thing that John Christensen wrote. Um, so, I mean, I, I use him a lot when I've done studies on, you know, uh, the charismatic gifts of the spirit, you know, I, I pulled him out and, you know, his writing, uh, his commentary on, um, first Corinthians where you, he, he's talking about those gifts and how he says, look, we're woefully ignorant of them because we haven't seen these gifts in a long time. It, it's according to him at that time, they had died out like they, they were no longer, you know, used, they were no longer practiced. And I mean, that's another pit to get into, into why, but, um, his stuff is very good to read. It's, it's, it's fun to read, you know, at that time. And and a lot of people enjoyed it. And so that really had the, um, Byzantine text, uh, popular, made it, made it popular. Um, African Christianity and the rise of Islam helped to really wipe out and, and destroy, a lot of the Southern texts, Alexandrian ones, it did a lot of good to push them and to push Greek literature and everything up, you know, into, uh, Constantinople into that, uh, Byzantine area. And, and that's what helped spur the, um, the Protestant reformation, the reformation as a whole. Um, it's, it's what, uh, really encouraged the, um, uh, the scholastics that we talked about in the, in the last series and the, um, Oh, their names escaping me here. The, the, the scholastics and oh, who, who are the other ones and the humanists? That's, that's who the scholastics and the humanists. Okay. And, um, y- you know, when, uh, when that happened with, um, you know, these, uh, the, the Mohammedans coming through and, and destroying every, everybody and killing everybody and, you know, just, uh, enforcing Islam with the sword, just like they do today. Uh, what it did was it, it pushed these, these manuscripts and these Greek speaking people up. And it's like, as soon as that happened, like a year later, they were teaching in the universities and teaching these humanists and these, uh, scholastics, uh, Koine Greek, and looking at this ancient Greek literature and looking at this, and, that, and that's where we got the, the battle cry, add fonts um, to the sources, to the you know, fonts from fountain, uh, fountainhead, where the fountain springs from. Uh, so, um, yeah, when you got the invasion of Constantinople in 1453, um, that's what really helped uh, push these manuscripts and this learning that direction. So... You know, I think that that's a good kind of uh, understanding of the the type of scribes, the the type of transmission, the type of things that they were doing. These people were all trying to preserve the text, but also at the same time, they were trying to make it clear for the people that were reading it. So if you're trying to get in your, your town's people's vernacular, you're writing it a certain way. But also, you know, these people are being very, very careful with the text and they're trying to make a lot of copies of this because they want it to be preserved and, you know, they would just continually copy. So whenever they came across things that made them uneasy, that they wanted to change, sometimes they would change them. Sometimes they wouldn't. But when they did change them, how significant was it in that 1%? Well, hey, let's take a look at that next.
everyone. Thanks for listening to The Theology Pit. Do us a favor and check out our website at samsonstick.com. Tell us what you like or what you don't like and consider making a donation. Just send a buck to show your appreciation. It's more than just money. To us, it's an encouragement. samsonstick.com. Thanks again. Now back to the show. All right. Well, let's talk about here now, um, you know, some of the intentional errors, like some of the big ones, some of the things that I think as, as Christians, we should know off the top of our head, because, you know, this is something that is, if, and, and I've, I've done this before where I've, I've been talking to Christians and they've brought up something to me and I told them, I said, Hey, you know what? That's not found in the earliest manuscripts. Really? It shouldn't be in your Bible. And the response I always get is, oh, oh, well, I shouldn't say always, but a lot of times what I get is, oh, so you're, you're someone that just picks and chooses what's in the Bible. It's like, well, no, it's not me. It's that, you know, the translation that you're using, you know, that shouldn't be in there. And honestly, any good translation, I don't care what it is, will have a footnote, usually at the bottom of the page of wherever these intentional errors are that says earliest manuscript does not contain this. People just aren't reading their footnotes, you know? And, and so I want to talk about some of the, the biggest ones here. Um, and, and you'll notice that even though these are the biggest ones, they're not going to change the message. They're not going to change the story. They're not going to change any, any doctrine. It's just something that, you know, we have to deal with, understand and say, this really doesn't make any difference because everything that's said here can be said in other places. So let me slurp some coffee here real quick. All right. So let's get started. The biggest one, in my opinion, one of the biggest ones that we're going to look at here is in Mark chapter 16, verses nine through 20. This is the, the, what's called the longer ending of Mark. And the reason why is because it doesn't follow the language of Mark and it doesn't follow his style. The way that Mark writes in his gospel, he is just very, I'm making a point, I'm moving, I'm making a point, I'm moving, I'm making a point, I'm moving. He doesn't spend a lot of time belaboring things or pulling things out. Mark was written, he was not an, he was not an apostle, he's not a disciple. He was writing under the authority of Peter. And if you look at Peter's sermon in the book of Acts, um, that he gives, it's sort of like an outline of Mark. And I'm starting with Mark here because Luke and Matthew used Mark sort of as a template. Okay. They looked at Mark's gospel and just, you know, kind of wrote things out like that. And, and you could see that there's, um, there's a theory out there that's, uh, called Q it's a, I forget exactly what it stands for. I think it's, it's, it's German. Um, but what they did was they said that these are all the sayings, uh, like a, a list of sayings, a list of stories, a list of like one type of manuscript that had all the stories, writings and, and things of Jesus. And this is what everybody pulled from because these are all the similar, um, wording, the similar stories, the similar approaches to, you know, between the synoptic gospels, which are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And they're called synoptic. Um, that comes from the word optic from eye and, uh, sin from similar sound or, or similar, 
uh, synoptic would be similar looking, uh, similar sound would be symphony. So think of a symphony. It's, it's one big sound, um, that's, that's, that's similar because everybody's playing within, you know, the same, the same parts and within the same piece of music. And it's, it's all written to go together. Uh, the synoptics think of it kind of the same way. You're just getting a big picture, but, um, Mark ends very abruptly because he ends with, um, with the resurrection and it's just, you know, kind of, it, it just kind of stops there. Okay. I mean, he says, um, let me just go, I'll, I'll just, I'll read the ending here for you. And it just says, uh, this is starting in chapter 16, verse one, when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome brought Aramaic, uh, aromatic spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week at sunrise, they went to the tomb. They had been asking each other who will roll away the stone from us for the entrance of the tomb. But they looked up and saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled back. Then, as they went into the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has been raised. He is not here. Look, there is the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples, even Peter, that he is going ahead of you into Galilee. You will see him there, just as he told you. Then they went out and ran from the tomb, for terror and bewilderment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. And that's how it ends. That's it. And a lot of people, that, that ending, it's, 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 it's very abrupt. It's, it's like, well, did they see Jesus? You know, I mean, Mark's trying to get that point across. What do you think? Do you think people saw Jesus raised? I mean, he's writing to people who are still alive. He's, I mean, in first Corinthians, it talks about Jesus appearing to the 500, you know, all at, all at one time. He appeared to many people in many places, but you know, 500 people at a time. And, and he hung around for 40 days before his ascension. Like he walked around, like he's saying, what do you think? I mean, look at, look at what's going on here. If, if we're dating the book of Mark into, you know, 43 AD between 40 and 50 AD. Okay. Jesus was, was crucified and resurrected in 33. That's not, that's not a lot of time in between there. I mean, let's, let's give it 10 years, 15 years. Okay. I remember 15 years ago, you know, 2001. There's a lot of people that would remember 15 years ago. There were a lot of people that were there. That's even Paul's argument. Um, you know, don't, don't, don't believe me. Don't believe what I have to say, but you know, go and talk to the people that saw him. He appeared to 500 at one time, go and find them. Some have died, but there's a lot of them that are still alive. Go, go and talk to them. Don't just believe me. And so Mark's kind of doing that. Mark's kind of leaving. And here's another thing back in this time, a woman's testimony really meant nothing, you know? Uh, so why would you write that it was women that we're going and telling people that it was women that did all this. Why would you end your story like that? Why would you end it on such an unauthoritative note? Unless it was true, unless it really happened that way. But still, you know, he's saying to the people of that time, Hey, you guys know what happened. You guys have seen this. You guys know the creeds, um, you know, first Corinthians chapter 15, you know, go read that. I'll wait. 
Okay. You know, you, I mean, you can pause it and go read it, but that is a, an ancient creed. That's not Paul's words. That's not Paul's wording. That's a creed that, that he is reciting there, you know, and that's what people believed. That's what people thought. They also had communion that they were doing. Okay. They were remembering the body and blood of Christ. They were looking forward to the resurrection. Okay. The apostles were out preaching. They were still, I mean, things are still going on. Apostles are still alive. Like people are still reading this. People are still like knowing, you know, this stuff. Okay. Maybe let's, let's, let's push this ahead. Let's say that Mark wasn't written until 60 AD. Okay. I mean, we'll, we'll push it up more. I, I think maybe I was being a little bit too generous with, with saying in the forties. In okay. Let's, let's kick it up a notch. Um, cause some people would argue, no, 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 it wasn't like Paul's writings came before. All right. That's fine. That's fine. Um, we'll, we'll kick it up to the sixties. Okay. It was definitely written before the seventies. Okay. So, but, but let's say sixties. Okay. Let's say that, you know, it wasn't for some reason, it wasn't as important, you know, but, um, it, you know, Luke doesn't talk about Paul's death. Okay. Which means, and he, and he wrote, you know, the book of acts, Luke and acts, which are historical, you know, acts of historical narrative. Um, it's following the gospel. Uh, you know, but he doesn't, he doesn't make any mention of it. No, no mention is made anywhere of Paul's death. You would think that he may have included that, but it's not. So Matthew and Mark, wherever you put Mark at, Matthew and Luke have to come after, and there has to be enough time for them to come after and, and you know, acts to come after also, but also all of Paul's writings have to be, you know, written in there. Um, Paul's writings, he discusses uh, Luke's writing. He calls, you know, he, he includes Luke's writing whenever he's, he's quoting scripture. He includes the gospel of Luke in the same line as uh, he does from a, a, a verse from Deuteronomy. So wherever you're putting Mark at, he's assuming that everybody knows. He's assuming that people know, and he's just kind of edging on. Like it just ends there, you know? They, they said, you know, said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Well, did they say nothing? I mean, what really happened? You guys know. You guys know the story. But that didn't sit well with a lot of people. So they said, look, we have to throw in the long ending. Okay, we, we, we just have to, you know, a, a scribe is saying, like, they're writing this out going, you know what? I'm copying down Mark because, you know, we don't have a lot. My town doesn't have a lot of money. We, uh, we need to get a gospel. I said, Hey, you know what? I'll, I'll go. I have a little bit of time. I'll write down Mark. It's the smallest one. Okay. I'm, I'm looking at these manuscripts. Maybe I'm looking at, maybe they're in codex form by this point. Maybe they're still, maybe it's still in a scroll. And he's like, okay, I got so much paper to use here. I'll go with Mark first. And he gets to that ending and he's like, Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> um, I better put a little bit more in here for, for the story, for people to understand. So he writes out the, the longer ending and, and here's the longer ending. There's 20 more verses that are just kind of, you know, uh, stuck, stuck in here. And it's uh, early on the first day of the week after he arose, he appeared to first Mary Magdalene from whom he had driven out seven demons. She went and told those who were with him and while they were mourning and weeping. And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe. After this, he appeared in a different form to two of them while they were on their way to the country. They went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Then he appeared to the eleven themselves, 
while they were eating, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and the hardness of their heart, because they did not believe those who had seen him resurrected. He said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. The one who believes and is baptized will be saved, and the one who does not believe will be condemned. These signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will drive out demons, they will speak in new languages. They will pick up snakes with their hands, and whatever poison they drink will not harm them. They will place their hands on the sick, and they will be well. After the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven, sat down at the right hand of God. They went out and proclaimed everywhere, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word through the accompanying signs. Now, if that is, that's the longer ending there. And, you know, you can see where people in some denominations take that as though it's authentic, as though it's supposed to be in there, that that is the word of God when it's just an addition. And I've always asked, could I do a summary and then insert it into the Bible and you accept it as the word of God? Because that, I mean, when we get into, you know, what exactly makes the word of God, the word of God, you know, uh, you know, is that, is that God speaking there? I mean, the, each line is kind of adding in some stuff from Acts. It's adding in some stuff from the other Gospels. It's just trying to, okay, let me just really quickly write this stuff out and, and, and get this down. You know, the whole, you know, picking up snakes with their hands. All right. Well, that's, of course, looking back at, um, you know, Paul when he was shipwrecked and he was bitten by a serpent and, you know, and, it, and you know, he didn't die. It didn't, nothing bothered him. And they said, oh, my goodness, you must be a god. You know, all that stuff. Um, that they will, you know, whatever poison they drink will not harm them. This is why you have these Appalachian snake handlers that, you know, will, you know, dance around speaking in tongues and um, uh, holding deadly snakes and, and drinking strychnine because, you know, they because of a variant, you know. It's almost like, you know, when they're on their way to the hospital, there had to be at least some, you know, emergency medical technician that would be in there with them, some paramedic that would say, well, you know, that's not supposed to be in your Bible. That's the long ending to Mark. And the earlier manuscripts don't have that in there. Okay. But you know, it's, it's not anything that you read and you're just like, Oh, I can't find this in the other gospels. I can't find this in other places. And that's one of the biggest here. Okay. That's, that's what I consider like, you know, one of the ones that it's the biggest that's had one of the most influences within the church, especially in Protestantism, you know, in, uh, in this time in our time period, you know, in, in Protestantism. So let's go to my uh, my second um, one here on my list that I'm going to take a look at. Okay, the next one I want to bring up is um, the woman caught in the act of adultery. And this is in John 7, verse 53 is where it starts. And then it goes into chapter 8 um, to verse 11. And we all know the story, okay? I mean, every good Jesus movie has to have the story of the woman caught in the act of adultery in it. I mean, even Mel Gibson's movie, he couldn't get away with it, you know? And he did it just on the passion, okay? On you know, the passion narrative. Uh, and, and yet he had to find a way to insert this in it's it, people love it but it's not found in the earliest manuscripts okay um where we have it in john in some manuscripts it's not in that spot some it's at the end some it's in a different place some manuscripts actually have it in the gospel of luke okay and it's not it's not supposed to be there so when people say to me you know things like you know well you know sam the bible says he who is without sin cast the first stone. I'm like, 
no, it doesn't say that. That's that's actually something that was added in uh, later. I mean, it's it's a great story. People love it, but it's just it's not found in the earliest manuscripts. It's not supposed to be in your Bible. It's one of the favorite verses that people have that's not supposed to be found in your Bible. And I'm not going to read it. I'm not going to read through it. But just think about where it's at in your Bible. I mean, the fact that it's the last verse of the chap of chapter seven, and then it moved, you know, goes to 11 of chapter eight. That's kind of weird, you know, that it, that it does that. So, you know, you should have a note in your Bible. If you open it up and it's in it's decent Bible, it would have right at that spot and say, you know, earliest and most reliable manuscripts do not have this, you know, in there, in, in, the, in the text. And the same thing with, um, with, with Mark. All right. So let's uh, flip back right now and go to uh, John chapter five, verse four. Now, my Bible doesn't have John chapter five, verse four in it. Okay, it it goes right from verse three to verse five, and it just says a great number of sick, blind, and lame. This is the the um, the story of the man who was who was lame at the pool of Bethesda, and um, Jesus went to him and said, "Yeah, pick up your uh, pick up your mat and and go, you know, walk and stuff." And he healed him there. Um, so uh, it just says a great number of sick, um, blind, lame, and paralyzed people were lying in these walkways. Now a man was there who had been disabled for 38 years. Okay, if you're reading along with me, you're like, whoa, you just left out a, a bunch of stuff. And the stuff I left out was um, the ending of verse three, which said, you know, waiting for the water, uh, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel of the Lord went down and stirred up the water at certain times. Whoever stepped in after stirring of the water, after the stirring of the water was healed from whatever disease which they suffered. Okay, that's not added in. We don't find that in the earliest manuscripts. That may have been like one of those like parenthetical things or like a little commentary that, um, you know, a scribe who was copying it out said just just informative for people if they didn't know where the pool of the say it was, if they didn't know what it was, what it was for, why were they there? Why were they hanging out there? Oh, well, you know what? The story was that an angel would come and stir the water up and whoever got into it first, then they would be, uh, then they would be healed. And so he was probably just writing that out on this. That could have been like a side note that eventually, you know, worked its way into the manuscript. Somebody just wanted to copy and they saw that little side note there and said, Ooh, yeah, that would probably be good for people to know. It's a, it's a good, you know, piece of why are all these people hanging around at this pool? I mean, you know, what's, what's going on there, but that's the reason why they're looking for that, you know, that particular healing. So that's another, um, it, uh, it's a smaller example, you know, it is, but, um, you know, it's something that, Hey, there's, there's a verse that shouldn't be in your Bible. Okay. Now sometimes, and you know, I mean, I, I got a couple minutes left here, I, I want to get to one more, but sometimes you have variants that happen because the original is really uncomfortable for people. Even the scribes copying it were changing it because they were saying, I don't, I don't like how this reads. I don't like what this is saying. I don't like what this is implying. And others were, were copying it and saying, well, no, this is what it says. And when you get things like that, you're going to get a ton of variants all over the place very early on. And here is one of them. It's in the book of Jude. Okay. And for those of you that, you know, know your Bible, 
like really, really well. Jude is, is the book that's right before Revelation. Everybody knows where Revelation is. Go one book back, you're in Jude. Okay, Jude. And um, Jude is just, you know, one big chapter, 25 verses. But this has a lot of variance in one particular part of it, and it's in verse 5. All right, let me read verse 5 in the New English translation that I have, the Net Bible. And, and, the, and the reason why this says what it says, and this is what bothers people a lot with it, okay? Or what bothered the scribes a lot with it. It says, Now I desire to remind you, even though you have been fully informed of these facts once and for all, that Jesus, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, later destroyed those who did not believe. Did you catch that? Jesus, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt. Now, if you remember from our last study, I went through the whole, I went through a big part of the Exodus. Um, you know, I went through the whole, um, you know, the lamb and like, you know, all that stuff. Here you have someone saying that Jesus is, is Yahweh. You know how Yahweh did all that stuff? That's Jesus. Here's one of the most explicit places where it says that it was not Yahweh that saved the people from the land and then later destroyed those who did not believe. It was Jesus who did it. A lot of scribes looked at that and said, whoa, wait a minute. Um, I'm uncomfortable with that. Let's just put in the Lord. Okay. Let's just say the Lord. And that really, you know, is what kind of like spurred this. And there's lengthy notes on this, but the fact that there are so many people, so many scribes that had a problem with this shows that the harder reading is probably more authentic. And, you know, I went into some Christology before um, the study of Christ. Uh, but this is, you know, one of the places that, that says, no, the, uh, the, the disciples, the apostles, the early church believed that Jesus was Yahweh. It was very difficult. I mean, this is where we get this concept of the Trinity from, you know, that Jesus is Yahweh, that Yahweh is a title and that Yahweh is God who consists of three persons. Jesus, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's where we're getting this stuff from. And when you have things written like this, especially chronologically, that it was Jesus who brought the Israelites out of Egypt, that is really, really powerful and really uncomfortable. And so there's a few of my, you know, favorite, I guess, uh, verses that aren't in your Bible or that have a lot of variants that are intentional errors. Um, next week, I'm going to talk about more intentional errors um, that that people don't even think about today. And then, um, you know, we'll get into the different types of, of Bibles and transmission and stuff like that. But uh, I hope you've been enjoying the Theology Pit. I hope you're enjoying this series. Visit me, uh, Samson, uh, samsonstick.com or email me, samson at samsonstick.com. And don't forget to like us on Facebook and pass this around. Thanks. It's time to close down the pit.